From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Justin Higginbottom. It's Friday, August 26th, and here's our weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Moab is recovering from historic flooding that occurred over the weekend. Many businesses were impacted. They spent this week surveying the damage and shoveling mud and debris. One of those businesses is up the creek campground. The popular site is located in town, right on the banks of Mill Creek, which became a raging river on Saturday night. Sophia Fisher from the Times Independent has more from their coverage on what happened at the campground and its future. Up the Creek Campground is its campground, as many listeners may know, on 300 South. It's on low-lying ground near Mill Creek and had what uh, one of the co-owners, Ariel Atkins, called a very, very close call during Saturday night's flood. And so, yeah, so tell me about what's what's left of that campground and what they experienced that night, because it was it was devastating, devastating. I mean, the land is left there, but it sounds like the campground itself has been mangled essentially beyond recognition is the sense I got. I mean, Atkins said that, you know, when the floodwaters rose, they had a dumpster that was like thrown across the street and all of their grills and tables were like mangled and they had these 600 pound steel cables that were wrapped around cottonwood trees and the whole thing was buried in like a foot of mud. But actually what Atkins, Ariel Atkins had reached out um, to us indirectly and it was actually because of the potential loss of life that almost happened at that campground Saturday night. There's this whole kind of harrowing story that she told me that her husband, Brad Woodford, who also um, owns the campground, had experienced. He'd gone over to check the campground Saturday night just because, you know, it was raining very lightly and they'd gotten a flood warning. They they thought the campground was going to be fine because it had never breached, she said, in in 30 years of existence. Um, But Woodford started driving over and when he saw water coming across the highway, he called Atkins and was like, something's wrong. Like, this isn't good. And actually what that led to is, is Woodford, you know, he went straight to the campground. He arrived as floodwaters were rising. And um, at that time, it sounds like the campers were starting to realize something was wrong, but nobody was fleeing yet. And Woodford helped kind of galvanize everybody to get out of there, including pulling these these two girls who had been sleeping in their tent because they were going to go hiking early the next day. He helped pull them out of their tent, um, you know, and, and forced them to run to higher ground and likely saved those girls' lives. So a, a heroic story, but obviously very traumatizing for everybody involved. And it sounds like he arrived just in time. If he would have been a little bit later, it might have been catastrophic. We would have had a catastrophic loss of life here in this community. Atkins told me that the, one of the girls he pulled out had said that by the time they were out of their tent, the water had gone from ankle deep to waist deep in like 20 seconds. Like it was the moment that the like biggest flood was coming down. And around the time, I guess, the floodwaters started rising, it was around, yeah, 8 p.m. or so, people were probably, you know, just getting ready for bed, some of the campers. Mm-hmm. Um, it would have, if it would have been a little bit later, you know, a few hours later or something, then, and yeah. there was actually people, more people asleep, I guess, then. Could have been catastrophic, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons that Atkins reached out is she said that she thinks the community, you know, we need to understand how close of a call that was. Like, as, as far as we know, you know, the flood damaged infrastructure, properties, homes, businesses, Of course, that's devastating, but there doesn't seem to have been any loss of life or even serious injury. So the fact that Moab escaped with that is actually um, something we should be really grateful for. And is she, you know, requesting any information or any changes to how emergency alert systems are happening in the community or, or anything maybe the community or local government can do so in the future these 
you know, we don't have to rely off basically luck to not have people die in an instant like this. Absolutely. Yeah. She said, you know, she does want she wants this story to serve as like a wake up call for municipal leaders, both here and anywhere else, understanding that things like this can and do happen. She was talking about potentially creating a better way to control Mill Creek or having better emergency alert systems. Um, And and she made the point, she said, quote, I know this is supposed to be this 100 year flood situation, but with climate change, I think it's naive to think that this won't happen for 100 more years. So it's important to understand that, you know, despite the term 100-year flood that we're all throwing around for good reason, we can't necessarily rely on the historical climate record to give us a prediction of when this could happen again. It could be sooner than we think. And again, that that campground is gone, basically. They've closed down, obviously. Yeah, closed down indefinitely. Atkins said they're still evaluating whether, you know, they could they would have the money to reopen and whether it would be ethical, given the fact that something like this could happen again. And it's it is very low land. Well, this is a, a great story about some, you know, personal stories of how this flood acted residents. And, and there's a lot of other stories out there, I'm sure, across town. What's, what's your next story? I did um, actually manage to speak with David Olson, who worked for Moab City for several decades as the community development director there. And he had a big part to play in building and getting the Mill Creek Parkway in place, you know, the parkway that was horribly damaged from Saturday's flood. But he actually, he said with a couple of exceptions, he was really pleased to see the way the parkway, the way it was designed to help floodwaters move through the community. Because, you know, some of the biggest issues, as folks probably already know, is when you know, bridges and underpasses and culverts get clogged with debris. That's what causes a ton of the flooding because the waters will just back up. You know, he said most of the infrastructure worked like a charm and allowed water and debris to just move straight through. Of course, there were some exceptions like the 300 South culvert, you know, some areas near the Bike Skills Park. But for the most part, he said it worked great, which is really cool to hear. There were cottonwood trees going down Mill Creek at at points, right? Yeah, cottonwood trees, boulders, all sorts of debris. I heard mentioned during the city council that a jaguar, the, the car, not the animal, was seen flooding down. I don't know if anybody else saw this, but... If you're missing a Jaguar. Yeah, if you're missing a Jaguar, call the police department, I guess. Well, yeah, that's incredible. That's a yeah, small bit of good news that uh, it could have been a lot worse, it sounds like. Exactly. Yeah, so definitely another, another small thing to be grateful for. And so in non-flood news, what do you have this week? Right. What else has been happening besides the flood? Um, the Grand County School District Board of Education... Uh, has released its proposal for changes to the property tax rates that it levies. Um, They haven't voted on the changes yet. They're going to vote on August 31st, but they did have a presentation about it on August 17th. And in a nutshell, the board is planning to drop rates. They they set about six different like small kind of subsets of property taxes, but collectively the rate change would be a drop of about 3%, um, which is not as much as they could have dropped. They could have dropped 8% while still complying with state law, but it is a drop. So, And property tax rates have been an issue on the county and city level recently as home values increase. So people are seeing um, more taxes. Exactly. Shout out here to uh, the school district business administrator, Pat Wilson, who helped me a lot reporting on this article because there are so many different things that go into, you know, how much money you're actually paying in taxes each year. And the, the rates are only one part of it. So it is true that, you know, every property in Utah gets reassessed for value every five years, I think it is. And you know, almost always with reassessments, the value will increase. So you could see a huge jump in the amount of taxes you're paying. But oftentimes, it's because you were reassessed, not because the tax rate changed, which is very, con- like, confusing and odd. 
And another kind of misconception that I want to help alleviate, because I was confused about this myself, is that there have been these public notices going out about this tax rate change. And it says the public notice reads that taxes would increase under this proposal. But this is the confusing part. It's increased compared to the amount that the school district could have dropped taxes, not compared to last year's tax rates. Okay. So if your house wasn't reassessed, your tax, your property taxes should drop this year. It's just that they're not they're not dropping as much as they could have. So as as home values just increase in general in this community, as property uh, is more in demand and house prices skyrocket, it doesn't necessarily mean that if someone builds something on their house, their value will go up. It's just if they're if maybe they haven't changed anything in their home, they might owe more property taxes. Right. So from what I remember, there are two different reasons for assessed valuations in the county to increase. One is inflationary. So it's just like you haven't done anything to your house, your property, the value's just gone up because it's in demand. The other type, I think it's called just real property, and that's the actual creation of like new structures, like an ADU or a house or something like that. And, you know, both of those are contributing. And one interesting thing is actually the assessed valuations around here are going up so quickly. That's part of the reason that they're able to drop tax rates is because they're still getting the same amount of money with lower rates because the value is so much higher. Yeah, well, well, thank you for reporting on this. It's especially interesting for people in the community on fixed income or something like mm. that, where property taxes really make an impact. Great. What else do you have in this week's paper? I got to write a little bit of positive outdoor news, which we always love. The Pack Creek Fire burn scar is showing a lot of promise. Excellent. And what, what is what is that looking like now? So this, this is the area where the Pack Creek Fire happened uh, mm-hmm. last year. Yep. So it's been just about 12 months. The total burn scar is about 9,000 acres. It's huge. Wow. Um, but what's been happening recently is there was a volunteer effort actually last fall led by Rim to Rim Restoration, the Forest Service, interested community members um, to seed a bunch of native species through the burn scar and a couple of those involved went back in June and saw that they were sprouting beautifully. The wildflowers are, are taking over, which is awesome. And the restoration work that involves reseeding, I guess, plants that were there before the fire. So interestingly, I think they're actually trying to sort of, as the area naturally regenerates, improve the diversity of plants there and also make them more native oriented. So, you know, I'm sure those wildflowers um, and pollinator species being native, I'm sure there were some there, but people are definitely looking to um, sculpt the way that the area regenerates too. And that restoration effort can help with floods, I believe. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I spoke with uh, scientists at the USGS, specifically uh, Rebecca Finger Higgins, who's talking about, you know, more seeding that they're going to try to do this fall and they're trying to add mulch in a way that they they want to create what they called micro topographies which can also like somewhat reduce flooding and the aim of they're not the entity that's really dealing with like flash flood and and, um, debris impacts but that's definitely a factor in this conversation as well and one other fun note is anyone who's been up there recently or earlier this summer you may have noticed all this cottony stuff floating around those are actually aspen seeds so oh, awesome. aspens are very well known for responding very positively after fires, assuming the root system doesn't get damaged. And the Pack Creek fire wasn't so big that it really damaged the roots. So the aspens are, are um, coming back gangbusters in the words of um, Barb Smith, who's a uh, biologist for the Forest Service. Oh, that's cool. So we might have more uh, aspen, more quaking aspen groves up there in the future. Absolutely.
They're not sure about the pinion junipers. Those are very slow-growing species that um, Cara Dorenwend of Room to Room Restoration, she said they're being impacted by rising temperatures in the area and, you know, the severe prolonged drought. So it's that's the big kind of question mark and potential downside is the pinion junipers at the lower elevations of the burn scar. We'll have to wait 10 or 20 years to really see if those regenerate, and it's definitely an open question. Sophia Fisher, reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. Most in our community learned of the recent flood's extent through social media or friends, or maybe by witnessing it firsthand, not through local emergency alert systems. That's raising big questions about how or if our alert system functions and the huge danger that creates for residents and tourists. Alison Hartford of the Moab Sun News has more from their coverage. The night of August 20th, no one received any emergency alerts that a flash flood was happening. Um, And so this is kind of a major issue that this flood revealed um, that we don't really have a system in place that works. And so uh, during the August 23rd city council meeting, Mayor Joette Langanese and city manager Carly Castle touched on this and they said they had met with county staff the previous day to discuss the emergency alert system and what went, went wrong. So there are two systems that are are theoretically in place within city limits. So anyone can sign up for emergency alerts through the city's Notify Me system, which delivers alerts via text and email. People can use that to sign up for emergency alerts. They can also get alerts about, you know, like new construction or road closures. And the county can also utilize a text alert geofence. So Castle and Lincolnese didn't talk a lot about this, but they did say that county staff said this type of thing would be possible. But on August 20th, neither system was utilized. Do we know why neither system was was utilized there? There's no clear idea why. Um, so Castle and Linganese both said that there's still confusion among city staff, county staff, and emergency responders as to which emergency system to utilize the next time an event happens and how to do so. And it seems extremely important, especially with a flood that we had recently where the the flood rivers were going through town very close to population centers. Right. Council members Jason Taylor and Ronnie Durassery both said that it's really frustrating that there are these systems in place and yet in the face of an emergency, neither were used. Um, Taylor said that during the last flood, people asked that communication go out and yet somehow that technology still wasn't fixed. And then Ronnie Durassery said that she's been signed up for the text emergency alerts for years and has received very few texts. Um, which is a sign to her that the system needs to be updated and needed to be updated years ago. Um, And they both said that this is unacceptable. Do we have any sense of what we might do to improve this system or what other communities are doing? Yeah, so other communities do have ways to send push alerts to um, residents and visitors. And the most important thing in Moab is being able to send out alerts to visitors. So the night of the flood, the city was trying to communicate with residents, but they mostly did that through their Instagram and Facebook pages, which obviously aren't um, accessible to all residents and also are very rarely checked by visitors. Yeah, that's that's how I found out about the flood is uh, through Facebook and Instagram. Right. Yeah. And I also, um, Maggie McGuire, who is the Moab Sun editor, um, she and I did a little bit of reporting on what happened to unhoused residents. Um, and so the Moab Moab Valley Multicultural Center said they know of at least three individuals whose belongings were washed away because they didn't they weren't notified about the flood. 
Oh, that's horrible. And they were they were probably sometimes they camp by the the creek bed or Right. Yeah. And so we have, you know, these huge populations of people who are really vulnerable when floods happen. Hopefully something's figured out soon with emergency alert systems right. in our community, especially because it sounds like these storms will be happening more often, which is the subject of your your next story, right? So I reached out to Utah climate scientist John Mayer. His expertise is in regional climate modeling and the North American monsoon. And so I wanted to talk to him kind of to make sense of what is happening because um, this year's flood was deemed a 100-year flood, but almost exactly one year ago, Moab had another 100-year flood. And so I wanted to ask him, you know, is this season really getting worse and what can we expect for the future? And and what did he have to say about that? So it's really interesting. Um, He said that when you're looking at climate data year after year, it's really hard to analyze patterns that way because yearly data changes so much like it's so variable and three years ago we had a really dry period Um, and for the past two years we've had these big storms and so he said it's really hard to predict what's going to happen you know next year but looking at historical data he has noticed that the extremes are getting worse and so we're getting more of this variability with you know some years we have no rain at all and then the next year we have this huge huge flood and it's not really balanced out Yeah, so that sounds like a kind of dangerous situation for a community like Moab. Right, exactly. Yeah, so we talked about, you know, how are flood rankings like 50 year and 100 year determined? Because it didn't really make sense to me that we could have 200 year events, you know, back to back. But John said that it's really complicated with this terminology because it's kind of determined by a statistical distribution. So if you think of a bell curve, in school grades, you'll get a distribution of like many A's and two F's and the bell curve will show you kind of how it evens out and where the extremes are. Precipitation doesn't exactly follow this bell curve, but from the shape of that distribution, they can look at extremes on either end and get a statistical idea of how probable an event is over a given period of time. And so this idea of the 100-year event was actually recalculated um, last year. He said that Every 20 years or so, climate centers like the Utah Climate Center that John works for will work with the state to quantify maximum precipitation estimates. So Utah's was updated last year, but now he's saying that I think we're going to have to recalibrate these ideas of what is a 100-year storm more often because 50 years ago, that looked much different. And just to be clear, a 100-year storm doesn't mean you have this storm every 100 years. It just means you have a very low probability, a 1% probability or something of of having the storm. And now these scientists are saying that probability is probably has increased. Right, exactly. Especially with climate change and global warming, these extreme events are becoming much more common. But John also said that one of the concerns with extreme precipitation is the potential for infrastructure failure. And so a lot of the bridges in Moab um, were built 50 years ago. And so they were designed um, with these maximum precipitation thresholds that were much different than what we would need today. And so that's another thing that the city is trying to decide is to what storm threshold do we rebuild and also to what storm threshold are we basing that off of? Like if we build 
a bridge to a 50-year storm, but that's based on data from 2022. In 50 years, that data is going to look much different. That's, that's very interesting. Yeah, the infrastructure around here might need to be completely updated. Right, exactly. And so John said that, that Utah itself is over-engineering to a degree, but that over-engineering is actually good because thresholds are getting more extreme. Well, good. That's a little bit of good news. So in, in non-flood related coverage, uh, what, what else do you have this week? Well, it's kind of flood related. So monsoon season, as we know, is in full swing. So in addition to flash floods and ephemeral waterfalls, Moabites can add another thing to their monsoon bucket list, which is spotting tadpole shrimp. And what is a tadpole shrimp? So a tadpole shrimp is a crustacean that lives in potholes. Um, the tadpole shrimp itself has been around for 220 million years, which makes it the oldest living creature on Earth. And they make their home in temporary ponds around the world, including the sandstone potholes common in Moab. Um, and during the monsoon season, the tadpole shrimp can come to life. And can you see them? Are they big enough to, to see? Tadpole shrimp are, they grow up to four inches in length, um, and then they share potholes potholes with two other types of shrimp. And so the way that it kind of works is when a pothole fills up with water during or after a rainstorm, the shrimp will hatch from eggs that were left over from the last wet period. Um, And then they rush to grow to adulthood, breed and lay eggs before the pothole dries again. And so their lifespan is only 40 to 70 days. And what do they do once the the water dries out in their pothole? So tadpole shrimp eggs can lie dry and dormant in the bed of a pothole for up to 50 years. Um, They can lose 92% of their water content and still be able to hatch. That's amazing. And if someone comes across a live tadpole shrimp, what should they do? Should they eat it? So I talked to Lauren Wimbish, who's an interpretive ranger at Canyonlands National Park, um, and she said people should just observe. Even just putting your hands in the water of a pothole can mess up the pH level and impact the life living in it. So if you do see one, just cross it off your bucket list. Great. And so don't try to eat them. Uh, and then also <laughs> probably don't step in dry potholes because maybe you'll kill right, those eggs. because they're eggs. Allison Hartford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes or at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.